Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. Well, this is week four in our series, uh, The Grace of Life Planting Seeds for a Marriage That Matters. And this morning, we're going to be talking about communication. Now, as important as good communication skills are in marriage, one thing I just want to make real clear on the outset of this is that communication is as much a gospel thing as communication is a marriage thing. Real clear. That's my premise. Communication is as much about the gospel as it is about your marriage, or in fact, it's even about communication itself. We can be very clear on our communication from a technical standpoint and still miss each other. So I found a few examples to illustrate my point. I got it from some schools and other churches. Here's one. Our youth basketball team is back in action Wednesday at 8 p.m. in the recreation hall. Come out and watch us kill Christ the King. Not sure if that's what they intended, but that's what came out. Ladies' Bible study will be held Thursday morning at 10 a.m. All ladies are invited to lunch in the fellowship hall after the BS is done. <laughs> kind of see what's going on with their Bible studies. The eighth graders will be presenting Shakespeare's Hamlet in the school gym Friday at 7 p.m. Everyone is invited to attend this tragedy. <laughs> Sounds like it might have been my kids' school. Um, now, these are just harmless mistakes, obviously, right? But the point remains, we can be clear from a grammatical, syntactical, technique perspective and still miss out on what we're trying to communicate. In fact, Jesus says that what comes out of our mouth is the result of what's in our hearts. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And then Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So it makes sense that if we're going to speak about communication, we need to be addressing the heart because that's where our communication comes from. Whether it's to a husband and a wife or a wife to a husband or it's a brother and sister in Christ at a church or somebody at your workplace or somebody at your school, communication, the words that come out of our mouth are of what resides in our hearts. And so we've got to understand that communication is a matter of the heart as much as it is anything else. So this morning, we're going to be looking back again in the book of Ephesians. Jesus took us there last week. So if you have a Bible, turn open to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one that's in the pew in front of you. You can turn to page 919. And I know some people are, are new to church, so I just want to point out that when you're looking through the Bible, the big numbers refer to the chapters, and the little numbers are referring to the verse number, right? So those are not footnotes. So Ephesians 4.25 means the fourth chapter, the 25 verse. So as uh, Jesus explained last week, the book of Ephesians is beautifully um, kind of got two sections to it. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays down the beliefs of what the new life in Christ is lo it looks like. And then chapters 4 through 6, based on those beliefs, Paul talks about how are Christians then to behave in light of the gospel. So in chapters 1 through 3, there's this great focus on doctrine. He's laying that foundation. And then chapters 4 through 6, it turns to our duty in response to that doctrine. So it's a great book on kind of explaining the Christian life in totality. As we begin chapter 4, you'll notice in those first few verses, Paul is talking about what it's like to walk worthy of this gospel that has transformed them. And he describes what does worthy, walking worthy look like in, act, in practice, and there they are, being humble, being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love, and eager, eager to maintain the unity that God has given us. 
Friends, right there, and, and Paul's not even getting to the kind of principles of communication that we're going to get to later in, uh, starting in verse 25, but as we look at that, what's just generally true of what it is to be a Christian? We're to be marked by this gentleness. We're to be marked by this humility. We're to be marked by this eagerness to maintain unity that God in His grace has given to us, certainly in your marriage and then in a local church. And if we're going to go from the general truths of what's applicable to all of our Christian lives, and then we can say that the same thing is probably true in our marriages as well. Now, before Paul jumps to these, these principles of communication in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, he reminds the Ephesians in verses 7 through 16 of all the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to every member of their church and for the purpose of building up the church, building up individual Christians so that they are mature in Christ. Now, notice with me in verse 15. In verse 15, Paul mentions the method the method by which we do this. There it is. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Friends, here's just a radical thought. In other words, Paul is saying that, that our speaking to one another is one of the very means by which God is transforming this motley crew of redeemed sinners to be like Jesus Christ Himself. That is an amazing thought. The very ordinary act of just talking to one another based on the truths of God's Word, fueled by the Holy Spirit with the intention to bring God glory and do good to one another, just the common, ordinary act of talking to one another can produce extraordinary results, maturity, and further conformity to Jesus Christ Himself. Friends, communication is really important, isn't it? Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Back to Ephesians 4 in verse 17 and following, Paul says, but they weren't always this way. They weren't always this way, but they used to be like the world around them, darkened into their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hardened, full of their own personal lusts and greed. But the gospel changed them. The gospel had come to their city and, and arrested their hearts, and they became new, new creations in Christ. Now, again, I just want to point out to you, when we read sections like this in the Bible, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hardened in hearts, it's easy to look at that or read that and go, that, that, that's not me. I mean, I, I, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I, ha I haven't done things that, that, that could be categorized as alienated from the life of God and in rebellion to Him. But if you were here in, in week two of our series, we talked about what the definition is, what the Bible means when it says that we are sinners. And, and, and yes, being a sinner includes things like murder, obviously, and, and those kinds of things. But the core engine of my sin, of your sin, is not so much an action as it is an orientation. We are me monsters. And we want the whole world around us to worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And when you get in the way of that, you're going to see the monster come out. That's what sin does. And so when we look at the Ephesian church, don't think, well, they were all full of scoundrels and they got radically saved. No, they were probably upright citizens like you or I, just living their lives apart from the things of God. 
And because of that, they were in rebellion. They were in darkness, and they were hardened in their hearts, living for themselves and not living for God's glory or the good of others. But the gospel had changed them, and so we get to verse 25. There we get here, and Paul says, therefore, and remember we taught you whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask, what is it therefore, right? Therefore, with all this in mind of what he's talked to up to this point, how do we communicate in a way that makes us more like Jesus and less like the me monsters that sin has made us become? And in these eight verses, Paul's going to talk about three principles of communication that, if consistently followed, not only, friends, is going to make your marriages flourish, but as we learned, if consistently followed, you will take part in building up the body of Christ to be like Jesus Himself. And that is a goal worthy of every husband, every wife, every Christian in this room. So let's take a look at the three principles one at a time. The first one we're going to find in verse 25, and it is this. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, I like the way the New Living Translation says it, and even the, the New King James, it just says, Stop telling lies, speak the truth. And I, and I love that because it puts on the table the real important issue. The challenge, though, with that translation, and I think that's why some of the modern translations changed it, is that lying, I hope you don't have to be a Christian to know you just shouldn't be lying, right? That that ruins relationships. And so they wanted to define this a lot more broadly because as they thought about, the translations committees thought about is that when you get down to it, Paul's intention isn't just to tell people to stop lying but embracing a way of going through life, embracing truth. And there's a lot of ways we can be deceptive without going to straight up lying. And so they changed the word to more of a general falsehood. Because while maybe you don't lie to your husband and wife, that doesn't necessarily mean, by the same token, you are pursuing and loving truth. Let me illustrate. If you've ever been in an argument with your spouse, and, and, and you want to make your point, and you feel if you just exaggerate a little bit, if you embellish this truth, if you just twist the screws a little bit harder, you can win the argument, you can tip it in your favor, and she gets shut down, or he stops talking. Well, that's deception. You're embellishing the truth. You're exaggerating your point. To make a point, you want to win. It's not about the relationship. It's about winning the argument. Maybe you have agreed to something just to get your spouse off your back, but you had no intention of following through on your agreements. That's deception. Have you ever changed the argument? You brought the focus off of something you don't want to actually address at this moment, so you distract them to think about something else. That is not loving or pursuing truth. If you're taking part in any of these, you are violating what Paul is writing here. You are participating in falsehood, in deception. And friends, nothing kills communication like deception, and nothing kills relationships like deception. Notice with me back in verse 25 why Paul says speaking truth is so important. It's right at the very end there. For we are members of one another. Now, he's talking about in the context of the church, but friends, what is true of what makes a healthy, vital, flourishing church is also true of what makes a healthy, vital, flourishing marriage. 
You see, fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. You diminish the tr- uh, truth, you diminish the trust. You diminish the trust, you diminish the fellowship. You erode the fellowship on which the relationship is built on. And so we, we, it's probably wise that we um, talk about some of these communication killers. Number one, Communication killer number one, lying. And I put here most dangerous, least common. And what I mean by that is, is I know, it's not that I don't know that couples are lying to one another. I do know that's taking place. But we're trying to deal with the general relationships dynamics in, our, in, our, in your lives. And most people know you shouldn't be lying. So that's not something that we commonly see at least all the time. But it is the most dangerous. Straight up lying is the most dangerous thing you can do for communication and your relationships. So that's why it's the most dangerous, but it's the least common. The second one that's more common, and it is dangerous, is deflecting. It's the thing we're talking about. It's, it's, it's not getting to the truth. It's letting people believe something that is not entirely true. And that, my friends, is still deceptive. And we partake in that kind of thing all the time. Just, just as an illustration, I remember just a couple weeks ago before our 50th anniversary, uh, we have this time capsule put on that wall, and we had been, I have been told, hey, it's really easy to take the plaque off. It's been there this whole time. It's a drawer. You just pull it out, and the plaque rolls out, and you can pull it back in. So I was all excited to see this because I'm a guy. I like to tinker with things. So I walked up to the plate, and I pulled on it, and, and I guess this guy's idea of a drawer is basically four bolts that holds it into the wall, and I yanked it off the wall. And I looked around, and there was nobody around me because that's not what's supposed to happen. I tried to put it back, and it fell out again. So I put it back, and I'd been doing this for three or four minutes, and I couldn't get the thing to stay. And so I didn't want anyone to know I did this, so I grabbed the, the, the welcome center, and I pushed it up against the plaque, and I just walked away, right? <laughs> so a few days later, I'm sitting in staff meeting, and we're talking about the time capsule, and all I can think about is our campus service crew. They're going to move the welcome center, and the plaque's going to fall on the ground, and guess who's going to get blamed? Them, right? And I'm sitting at staff meeting, running the numbers and going, well, they're young. They can take the hit to the reputation. I'm just not going to say anything. And finally, as I'm sitting there, the Holy Spirit's like, dude, you are lying, and you're letting someone else take the rap. And then, of course, the flesh said, but no one will know. So right in the middle of Jill was saying something, I said, guys, I just got to be honest, I broke the time capsule plaque. And they all looked at me, where did that come from? Because I said, look, I just don't want somebody else to get blamed for something, I did it. But that's deflecting. I mean, I, I didn't deflect by God's grace, I've been, I was honest, but that's the point. There's so many times we don't have to say a word. We, we, we can mislead, we, we, we don't have to say anything to allow the truth to be buried, but that's not the point of Ephesians 4. That's not what it is to pursue truth. Now, as a consequence, they give me, every time anything breaks on campus, they're like, Pastor Rick, did you break this too? I'm like, dude, if I break it, I'll tell you, you should know that. The point is, deflecting, it can destroy relationships. It's dangerous and it is more common. But here's one, expectations and assumptions. This is the least dangerous in that there's, there's really no intention at all to deflect or to lie or deceive, but it's also the most common thing. Now, what I mean by most common, friends, if there is a way that we will, um, I guess what we might consider sin against each other, miss each other, it's in the area of expectations and assumptions. 
Here's the point. When it comes to expectations, every single one of you, every single one of us in this room, in every situation, in every relationship, we are carrying with us expectations. The question isn't if you have expectations. The question is, are you even aware of what those expectations are? Like so many things about the Christian life, the less we are aware of these realities, the more they have control and influence over us. When you walked into this room, you had expectations. Some of those expectations are legitimate. There is an expectation that the man that stands behind this pulpit to preach is preaching to you the Word of God, and he's prepared and studied and ready to give you something, not of his opinion, but from God's Word. That's a legitimate expectation. If you want him to be inspirational and insightful and motivational and hilarious and well-dressed, that's not a legitimate expectation, right? And I often meet that, and sometimes I don't. The point is, you have expectations. Are you aware of what they are when it comes to your spouse? Have you voiced those expectations, and are they legitimate? Are they biblical? And here's more important, how do you know one way or the other? Just because you have an expectation, it doesn't mean people have to meet it. The question is, is it a biblical expectation? Years ago, when I was going through Bible college, Jack was one of my roommates, and he now is married to his wife, Jael, in Miami. They're having great ministry out there, but he was just dating Jael, and he wanted to have a romantic dinner with her. So he asked all of his other roommates. We had about five of us living in the house. He said, can you guys all be out of the house because I want to have this nice romantic meal with Jael, a nice romantic evening. So he got candles set up. He had nice music playing. He cooked the meal, and there was Jael. She was just loving this. And at the end of dinner, he slid across the table a small suede box and smiled at her. And Jael, it's just, you know, hands shaking. They're just dating six months. And she picks up the suede box. She opens it up. And the rest of the night went sideways. What do you think she was expecting? A ring. You know what was in the box? Her old pair of earrings she lost two months earlier and Jack found and thought it would be really nice to give it back to her this way. Did Jack sin against Jael? Now, don't tell me what you want to think, but did he sin against her? No. It's not a sin to be dense, right? I mean, it's, it makes life hard, but it's not a sin to be dense. But he failed, and now he set this thing up. I mean, we told him, like, what were you thinking? He failed to meet her expectations, and because of that, the whole evening went sideways. Expectations rule us. Are you aware of what your expectations are for your husband, for your wife, for your brother, sister in Christ? Now, women, I know you can kind of say, well, if he loves me, he should know. Right? That happens. First comment, okay, that's not necessarily a biblical perspective, right? That is, that's not. Second comment, have you met a man? I mean, ever? Right? Like, <laughs> we don't read instructions. We can't read your mind. It just, but the point is, we are constantly moving through our world and through your marriage with a bunch of expectations, and some of them are not even biblical, and yet they are there. The second kind of communication killer that is least dangerous but most common is assumptions. We often make assumptions about one another. A husband leaves the, the house Hey, sweetie, I'll, I'll be gone for a little while. And he's thinking, I'm going to play basketball for a few hours. She's thinking he's running an errand for 15 minutes. He comes back in three hours and World War III, and he thinks he communicated. Assumptions. 
assumptions. Socrates, the Greek philosopher, said, the beginning of wisdom, and I guess marital harmony, is the definition of terms. Do you understand what you each are talking about? When Lori and I were planning our wedding, uh, she was talking about a reception, and I was totally on board because she's talking about a reception. And in Hawaii, that means a potluck in the church gym. That is not what she had in mind when she heard what talked about reception. It was a sit-down dinner at Ilfornayo. Very different things. Don't assume. Ask. Get clarity. Friends, this isn't just a marriage thing, by the way, right? This is a people thing. The question isn't if I or anybody in this room or your husband or wife fails to meet your expectations. It's a matter of when. It's not if we will make assumptions, it's when we make assumptions. And here's the question, when your husband or wife or brother and sister in Christ fails to meet your expectations or your assumptions, how will you respond? Will you be that husband or that wife or that brother and sister in Christ that gets mad, holds on to bitterness, or you be that person who seeks reconciliation? In other words, will you bear fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, patience, kindness, goodness, or in that moment will be works of the flesh, fits of anger, strife, enmity, which will come out when your husband or wife or a brother and sister in Christ sins against you by simply failing to meet your expectations or assumptions. Well, this leads us to principle number two in communication in our hearts. Pursue reconciliation and avoid bitterness. Look at verse 26 and 27. Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Devil. The second principle, friends, is this. We have to fight against anger, bitterness, by resolving conflict quickly. You see, God doesn't want a breach, a, 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 a brokenness in the fellowship, whether it's in the local church or in the marriage. Now, notice what Paul says. Paul doesn't say you cannot get angry. Rather, he's warning against sinful anger or allowing it to persist and thus giving an enemy a foothold in your relationship to wreck all kinds of havoc. And Paul writes here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What he means is resolve the conflict. Work through it. Don't ignore it. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't complain about it to your family or your girlfriends. Don't get grumpy about it with the boys. Don't blame shift. Don't rationalize. Don't deny responsibility. Resolve it biblically. This is really important. Now, this doesn't mean like some friends of mine, took it literally that they wouldn't go to bed until they resolved their conflict. So they're up at 2 a.m. now that they're angry with each other, now that they're exhausted, and it kind of snowballs. That's not what it's getting at. It's talking about an orientation of the heart. Be committed to resolving these problems quickly. Don't make yourself stay up till midnight or 1 a.m. trying to work through an issue. That's usually not a good idea. Now, honestly, with our busy lives, sometimes you can't work through conflict immediately right? So let me give you quick three A's of, of delayed reconciliation. And, and the, you do these three things, and this will immediately take away the devil's opportunity to get a, a foothold in your relationship. Number one, you need to affirm your commitment of love for your husband or wife. You had a big blow up before, as you're walking out to go to work at breakfast, and you just say, look, sweetie, I love you. I want to affirm that. 
and you're acknowledging your desire to reconcile, say, we got a busy day, and, and you're busy, you've got work, and then tonight you've got the kids thing at church. How about tomorrow after dinner, we make some time? And that's the third thing, assign a time, schedule a time to reconcile with each other. I get it, because sometimes things happen, and you can't immediately drop everything and reconcile. And so you basically just say, look, you want to affirm your affection for them. By the way, this works not just with husbands and wives. This works with anybody in the body of Christ. You affirm your affection for them. And you're going to acknowledge that we have to reconcile. To allow a breach in the relationship is not acceptable because that gives the enemy a foothold. And we're not going to do that. How about we get together tomorrow or next week or maybe even this weekend. But let's work this thing through. See, the question the passage is asking is husband or wife or Christian, are you someone who is actively seeking to reconcile, to bridge the gap in that relationship? Or are you somebody who's going to be offended, somebody who feels entitled that other person has to apologize first, and you're not going to do anything until they come and make up? I want you to go with me to Matthew's Gospel. Keep your finger in Ephesians. But go with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. Starting in verse 23. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 23. This is what Jesus says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Okay, stop. Notice what Jesus is saying. If you're coming before him, he's talking about the synagogue system and they would bring out their offering and their gifts, and as you're coming up to that altar, you remember, oh, my brother has something against me. What does the text say? I leave my gift and then first go and be reconciled to my brother. So let, let's make this concrete. Let's say um, I know Tristan has something against me. And so I'm in church and I'm worshiping the Lord and I'm like, okay, everything's good between you and I. You've broke down, broken down the barriers. Me and you are good. And I go, oh, wait a minute. Tristan has something against me. That's because I beat him in arm wrestling and he was embarrassed about that and I hurt his pride, right? That would never happen. But So this brother is a, has something against me. The scripture says I have to go to him and make it right. Okay? Who's the, so who's the onus upon to reconcile the relationship? Me, right? Even though he's the one because he lost the arm fight, he's the one that's pride's wounded, but, he wants to, but I got to make it right, right? The onus is on me. Now go to um, Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Okay, wait a minute. Now what is Jesus saying? If, if, if Tristan sins against me, because he, like, punched me in the arm wrestling fight, and that's how he won, right? If he sins against me, who's the onus on to make it right? Me. If my brother sins against me, go to him, right? Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So listen to what Jesus is saying. If I'm worshiping and I realize this brother has something against me, who's responsible to make it right? Me. Well, that's Matthew 5. What is Matthew 18 saying? If my brother sinned against me, who's responsible to make this right? 
me. Now, just to be clear here, this is not all me. This is you too, okay? All right? You get that, right? So who's the onus of reconciliation upon? The other person or you? You. You. Me. Regardless of whether or not I actually did anything to him, if he has something against me, God says, go make it right. If my brother has done actually something against me, God says to me, go and make it right. Friends, we are peacemakers like our Father. In every situation, reconciliation rests not with them, it rests with you, right? Just like I say in marital counseling, whenever husbands and wives come to me, who's the real problem in the marriage? The husband and the wife, right? So who's responsible to reconcile? The husband and the wife. You're getting the pattern here. Right? This is how we are like our heavenly Father. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you are just this welcome mat and they just trample all over you. I'm not saying you're the one that has to always say sorry first. These are wisdom issues, aren't there? This is where wisdom comes into play. What I'm asking is, what is the general orientation of your heart? Are you the person that holds on to a grudge that gets angry and gets petty and small? And no, I'm gonna, when they come to me, then it's okay. I'm not going to them. Let me tell you something very clearly. That is not becoming of one who professes to be of Christ. The responsibility is for you to be the peacemaker. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see the face of God. Paul is implying that we consistently seek to reconcile because we don't want the enemy to get a foothold in our marriages, in our friendships, in the church. Friends, in a world so marked by conflict, and polarization and irreconcilable differences. Can you imagine how countercultural it would be if people looked at a church and husbands and wives and the church just got along with each other? We, we could get rid of all of our evangelism programs because that would be it. People would be like, how does this happen? How does this work? Well, we pursue reconciliation. We pursue truth. That's the grace of God. Friends, this is such a big topic that we're actually next week, we're going to be just talking about biblical conflict resolution. So there's more to say on it, and we're going to say it next week as we talk about conflict resolution. So let's move on. Principle number one, pursue truth in our communication, right? Be particularly aware of your expectations and assumptions because more than any way, this is the way we're going to sin against each other is by failing to meet our expectations and making assumptions about one another. Be careful of those assumptions, Right? When your husband or wife says a little while, are you filling in the blanks with 15, 20 minutes when they meant two to four hours? Don't assume, ask questions, get clarity. And then principle number two, when reconciliation breaks down, when reconciliation, rec pursue reconciliation when communication breaks down, right? Do that as soon as possible. Don't pout, don't put down, don't let the enemy get a foothold in your relationships. If you can't reconcile immediately, then reconcile later. If you can't reconcile later, you and your, hus your husband or your wife, you're at logger jams. That's the benefit about being in a church, friends. If you can't reconcile, reach out to another couple that you know, that you love, that they love you, and ask them to help you out through this thing. Galatians 6.2, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Don't wait till you're like throwing dishes to call the church off and say, hey, hey, Pastor Jesus, can we see counseling with you? Oh, he's going to say no, because he's going to say, you, you don't need counseling. You need like a boxing ring at this point, because you guys are at it all the time. Don't wait 
to your so you've crashed your relationship in a ditch before you reach out for help. Counsel one another. Care for one another. Have the humility to say, man, me and my wife are just not seeing this. We need some help and reach out for other people. Let's finish with principle number three. Uh, that's starting in verse 29. Let's take a look at it back in Ephesians 4. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The phrase corrupting talk comes from the Greek word sapros. It's used of words uh, um, to describe rotting trees or rotting fruit. My wife and I, we have a, a sapros lemon tree in our backyard. It's not so bad that we just want to like tear it up and start over, but it's also not so good. So sometimes Lori or Anna will ask me to go get lemons from the lemon tree so they can make lemonade, and I, I go out there and I shake this tree, and sometimes a lemon falls down with a nice healthy kind of thud on the ground because the, the pulp is juicy, the peel is robust and healthy, right? And sometimes a lemon falls down that's kind of like a, a, a squish when it hits the ground. And so I pick it up and it's, it's soggy and I can squeeze it and mush comes out. Now, I could still make lemonade from that, right? But why would I want to make lemonade from that when there's such healthy lemons to use? Now, if, if our speech reveals our heart and Paul's talking about put away corrupting speech from us, then it stands to reason we understand what he's probably talking about. Obviously, lying, right? Gossip, slander, cursing, cussing, those kinds of things. But also, I think Paul's talking about, because of the use of the word corrupting speech, he's also talking about the kind of speech like just snarky tones of voice, kind of low-level grumbling or complaining that we might have in our relationships. Using our words to tear down, to erode at foundations rather than build up, rather than encourage. Sometimes our language, it's not so bad that we feel like, oh, i got to stop talking like this, but it is bad enough. Friends, the goal of our speech is, is not just to not be horrible, right? The goal of our speech is to be edifying. The goal of our speech is to build up, not just be okay. There is only one species on this planet that God has gifted with speech, and that's us. And that's for a reason. It's a stewardship. The words of our mouths is a stewardship. Look at verse 29. Not corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Friends, don't be the rash one who your words cut people around you. They cut your wife, they cut your husband, they cut your children, the people that you work with, your friends. Be the one that your words bring healing to their lives. Instead of corrupting talk, Paul says, Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Doesn't that sound good? Can you imagine if our words was sweetness to the soul and health to the body? We have that ability. Every one of us in this room 
Whether you're gifted with uh, oratory or not, every one of us in this room has the ability to bring sweetness to the soul and health to the body. In verse 31, Paul, as we conclude, is summing up everything he's talked about since verse 25. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Uh, just let me read verse 32 as well. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, our communication problems are actually heart problems. It's not that you lack good communication skills, that you're not very good at active listening, or you don't replace uh, you statements with I statements, or you use superlatives like always or never. Those are legitimate communication techniques, and you know what? You can Google those. That's, that's, why, I didn't, that's why I didn't talk about any of them today, because you can just Google good communication techniques, and you'll find tons of them. But the problem isn't that we lack those techniques. The problem is the orientation of our hearts are so often not about pursuing truth, right? Embracing truth because it's strength to the soul and health to the body. It's because our hearts aren't interested in pursuing reconciliation because she said or he said that thing for the umpteenth time and I'm sick of it and we get bitter. It's that, that, that we don't pursue gracious speech. We let corrupting speech take root and, and just pollute everything. Our communication problems are problems of the heart, and that's where we've got to go. Friends, just if you could do just like a homework assignment and just listen to the words that come out of your mouth for a week this week. I, mean, I know that may be hard, but this can be one of the most profitable things you husbands, you wives, you Christians could do. Listen to the words that come out of your mouth. Do they impart life? Do they build people up? Do they, do they make them think about things above or the things of this world? Or do they tear people down? Are they deceptive? Are they, are they, are they divisive? Do they bring clarity and light? Or do they bring division? Are they big and magnanimous? Or are they petty and self-centered? Think about the words that come out. Because, friends, good communication is, is God-centered in that it's full of the Scripture and wisdom of God, and it's other-centered in that it seeks to build up and encourage others. Good communication, it's about valuing truth and reconciliation and grace. Husbands, if you made a commitment that you're just going to speak truth, by the way, truth also with love, right? Romans, Ephesians 4.15, speaking truth in love. Made a commitment to speaking truth in love and being reconciling and speaking with grace. Your wives, they just flourish. Wives, the same goes true for your husbands. Speak words that will make them flourish and grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And friends, in, in essence, we're not just talking about a way of communicating. We're talking about a way of being. Right? This, this is the way Christ was. What does the Scripture say? That, that He is the actual Word of God. Christ Himself is the communication from God to us, who is the truth, who reconciled us to the Father by grace. So what we're talking about here is learning to be more like Jesus Christ, pursuing truth, reconciliation, and grace. That's exactly what Christ did for us. Oops. Notice the last verse. We're going to close with this, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And here's the key phrase. As God in Christ forgave you. 
Have you experienced the kindness of God in your salvation? Have you experienced the tender-heartedness of God against your sinful rebellion? Have you experienced the forgiveness of God? That, that's, you know, if you've been in a church a while, you're all being, yes, you're saying yes, stop, think. Have you experienced His kindness, His tender-heartedness, His mercy toward you, the me monster? If you can truly say yes to any of those, if you can say, yes, I've experienced his kindness or tenderheartedness and his forgiveness, then you can do the same. But it can't be by your own moral fortitude, like I'm just going to try harder. The key is in Christ. It's no coincidence that, that, that we end that way. If you look through all the book of Ephesians, that phrase, in Christ. Friends, the life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ. Do not try to live the life of Christ if you do not have the life of Christ. But in Christ, you can speak to your husbands, you can speak to your wives, you can speak to your children, your employer, your employees, the, the, the person that cut you off or cut in line at 7-Eleven. You can speak to anyone this way in Christ. We can and we've been enabled to do so. We need to do it for His glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, I just want to admit, along with my brothers and sisters, I fail more, probably more than in any way in my life, I, I fail and sin against you and others through my words. If I'm, not being, if I'm not deflecting or being deceptive, I'm not pursuing truth, I'm not loving it, I'm not pursuing reconciliation, I give in to bitterness and, and anger because this keeps happening over and over again, and I'm not, I'm not pursuing to be a, a grace-filled speaker, but just, if I'm going to be honest, what the text says, it's corrupting talk. Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, help us to use this wonderful gift, the gift of language, with the power of life and death, this is a gift we all have. Help us to use it well to build up our wives, our husbands, our families, our church, our communities, to speak truth in love. And we recognize as I pray this, we are not able, so we also pray, Holy Spirit, you would find us usable vessels to be changed, that you would conform us to the image and likeness of Christ. There is too much at stake for us not to be changed by you. And so we submit ourselves to you for the glory of God and the good of his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.